Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. Arguably, no country has handled the coronavirus outbreak better than South Korea. In the weeks since the first cases were confirmed in the city of Daegu, the country has registered fewer than 10,000 confirmed infections and fewer than 200 fatalities. These numbers are not only far lower than in countries like Italy, Spain, and the United States, but South Korea also did not impose the same sweeping restrictions seen in those countries. How did South Korea manage to flatten the curve? And what can the rest of the world learn from its example? In this episode, two South Korea-based friends of Asia Society, journalist Jong Min Kim and writer and historian John Delury, address these questions and more in a video call with our Executive Vice President, Tom Nagorski. So first, I want to ask both of our guests, Jong Min, why don't I start with you? Uh, just for those of us who are not in Korea, Give us a, a sense, just a few weeks since uh, those very tough days in Seoul and beyond. To what extent is COVID-19 uh, still a part of the consciousness and the, and the daily life for you uh, as we speak now in late March? Uh, when it started, there was a bit of a fear, um, a lot of fear actually, and panic. But right now, after um, KCDC flattened the curve and we are getting all these emergency alerts whenever we are near, um, living near a con confirmed case, um, people are feeling a little bit more comfortable with going out wearing masks, although people are refraining from going to public gatherings, public places, restaurants. Um, and right now we are seeing the downward fashion of the um, the number of confirmed cases every day, and it's also um, two-digit number these days, 91 new um, after March 26, when it hit March 27 morning. Um, people seem to be having uh, more trust in the government's um, response to controlling and containing the disease. I should say, you bring up a, a point about schools and, and other things, Jungmin, but John Delury, We'll get to in a moment to some of the tactics that were used uh, in South Korea, but am I right that the, the big lockdown in terms of, of economic life, life in general, to what extent did that come or did, or did not come in, in South Korea? Yeah, well, I, I don't think it would be appropriate um, to describe South Korea as ever being in a situation of lockdown. You know, I'm from uh, Northern California and constantly in touch certainly with my, uh, with my mom and stepdad and family and friends. And as you know, they're, they actually a little, I think, before New York were in uh, shelter in place orders, you know, and um, we didn't really have that level of restriction. Or certainly if you look at Wuhan and Hubei and other parts of China, you know, quite draconian measures um, to stop people from going out with police enforcement. Uh, that's just never happened in South Korea. So I do think that's um, very important. There was one moment uh, where, you know, there was, there was kind of a flurry of, it seemed like maybe the government um, and some politicians mentioned the need for something like a lockdown of Tegu, the, the hard hit city um, in the southern part of the country. And, you know, you see how democracy works. There was immediate blowback in the media uh, among the political opposition that said, we are not locking down Tegu. And uh, the politician who mentioned that backtracked and everyone, the system immediately backtracked from that. And South Korea has managed to uh, get through this uh, initial, certainly put out a wildfire of a massive uh, infection cluster to do it without a lockdown. I think that's fair to say. So it's really interesting in many ways, because here, of course, same debates. I'm sure they have existed in some fashion in every place that's been touched by COVID. But um, I was going to wait to get to this, but let's help the audience a little bit for those who are not familiar with the geography and, and the source of this, this first outbreak. So uh, Daegu, and in particular, a religious uh, community there. And Jungmin, maybe you can um, uh, speak for a moment about that community. But it seemed that uh, at a moment when there were only, I think, um, a handful, 10 or 11 or 12 uh, confirmed cases, a huge uh, testing uh, protocol went into place, testing kits produced. But, but Jongmin, can you just tell us a little bit about this place? Because every country and community has its sort of first big cluster. And this mm -hmm. was an interesting one in, in many ways. Can you, can you help us to understand 
um, the church and the community and what happened there? Sure. So one of the um, first cases, I think it was 31st, um, this person was part of a religious group called Shincheonji. And um, this person infected a lot of people, especially in the area of Daegu City and also um, the area around Daegu. And it was because of a church, meet, church gathering that was held where there were um, these people were tightly um, seated and they were um, holding this religious ceremony and a bunch of these people from um, this church they got, um, they contracted the coronavirus. And after that, because they moved around in the city and also outside, the big cluster um, happened in Daegu. And they did not, am I right that they, that community, for I guess you could say religious reasons, they did not want originally, or they were not responsive uh, to public health officials coming to them to test? Well, not all of them, but they were criticized by some South Korean citizens for not abiding by the quarantine rules. Um, Shincheonji, um, it's not it's not considered orthodox, and they many of them are hiding their religion in South Korea for some reason, and um, and also they were some of them are very adamant about not going public about their beliefs or whether they um, contacted the confirmed cases. So what happened was that, um, what even happened was the South Korean citizens um, went after them to track their like private information and find out who's Shincheonji member. Mm. And then there was a brief moment in the South Korean government discussing whether um, all of these members of Shincheonji group um, should be um, tested. And they did start with that, but then at Southern at a certain point, they stopped it for some reason. Um, but then um, there was a debate whether or not a certain religious group should be a target mm -hmm. of um, such testing. So here we have, let's come back to John Delury then. We have a situation which sounds just a recipe for a nightmare because as you said, there are debates about, uh, you know, how much of a lockdown to have. There's debates about what to do with this community uh, that's having one of the first clusters and first outbreaks. And yet again, we're talking four, five, six weeks ago, Max. Here we are today. Uh, so first of all, it's, step one, I guess, is the testing. How did they, uh, in South Korea, get so quickly, just to throw out another number, 100,000 kits in production almost immediately. I guess they had many on hand. 300,000 tests at the high point administered every day. Uh, was South Korea just... A, super prepared for this, or B, just super fast in its response? Well, first of all, Tom, let me maybe correct one of those numbers. I don't think it was ever at the order of uh, 300,000 a day. Um, I think it's about 20,000 was probably the max. Yeah, um, and about over, over 350,000 uh, cumulative at this point. Uh, but still, um, to be at 10, 20,000 a day when they needed it was an extraordinary achievement uh, and, you know, way ahead of the curve. Um, so South Korea is right and Americans are right to have been looking at South Korea and saying, what is wrong with our system, with our uh, leadership? I think, you know, if you look and there's been good reporting that I've read and followed on this um, that's detailed what happened, which is that you know, here the system worked, the government worked, the leadership at uh, KCDC uh, worked well, and the uh, private sector worked together, um, immediately recognized the seriousness of the threat. It could be the fact that China's next door, and, you know, um, when, when China coughs, we feel it. And so maybe just the geography, there was no sense of false security that Americans or Europeans may have felt. Um, you don't feel that in Korea, but the system went to work. The government did what it needed to do um, to give some regulatory room for private companies to quickly develop um, the test kits. And then also the lab capacity, you know, that's a big bottleneck in the United States. From my understanding of it, there's not just the kits. You got to have the technicians and the labs um, to, to, uh, to find the results. And so all of that capacity was ramped up very quickly. Um, and the, so the government and the private sector worked well here together. And, and uh, 
Uh, for a while, it was excess capacity, but then due to that cluster infection we described with the, with the Shincheonji sect, they were ready to go and they could quickly start doing all the testing that they need to do, starting with that group and then moving beyond it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a lesson. I mean, I think the United States is now trying desperately to catch up and has done a little bit of catch up, but, but still, if you look at it per capita and you look across the United States, um, you know, all effort has to go into replicating some version of that, uh, success. So let's come to, to Jungmin Kim. The um, uh, pandemic preparedness is another phrase. It's maybe not as uh, fancy sounding as flattening the curve, but um, again, clearly problems in the United States and other parts of the world. Does part of the preparedness that, that South Korea uh, clearly had uh, have to do with the MERS uh, um, contagion that it experienced a few years ago, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, syndrome or, or SARS, which I gather you lived through, uh, Jungmin? Yes, I had SARS when I was high, in high school, so I remember that very clearly. Um, there was already the infrastructure, the basic infrastructure and the norm about self-isolation um, in South Korea, in the knowledge of the South Koreans. I remember that when I was in high school, I was in a dorm and I caught SARS and the school was basically under isolation. All the students were not allowed to go outside. And we always um, checked, the teachers checked our temperature um, like every three hours. So that kind of system um, and the, need, the, the knowledge of the need to take these um, diseases seriously, I think it, uh, mattered a lot when we were handling this COVID case, although it was much, uh, much serious with the vaccine um, not available. Um, I think I should mention healthcare system as well. Um, adding to what John said, um, people here are not really afraid of going to the hospitals um, because the Korean healthcare system allows people um, to um, get medical treatment um, without having most of the times without having private insurances, health insurances. Um, when this happened, um, people all went to the hospital when they had um, certain symptoms. And when the government started to see that the hospitals lacked capacity to um, see all of the patients, they started um, um, handing out this guideline that they have to call a certain number first before um, going to the hospitals and getting checked up or going through the drive-through um, testing booths to figure out whether or not their symptoms sound like um, COVID. Yeah, so they had, they had experience in a, in a comfort level, uh, I guess is probably yeah. the right, right yeah. phrase. The, um, you've both made the point uh, uh, in our conversations prior to this uh, event that uh, testing is one thing, but then of course it's what you do uh, with the information you get. And here I, I find it very interesting. And, and John, maybe you can take us through just some of the, uh, a lot of this involves high tech and IT. Uh, walk us through, uh, if you could, what happened in those early stages when, with the data that was amassed through the testing uh, protocols? Um, yeah, well, one thing, kind of a placeholder, I want to come back uh, to Jungmin's point about the healthcare system overall, because I think that's very important. And, you know, as, some, as an American who's experienced the American system and now being here for 10 years, uh, the contrasts are really stark. And I think that's, uh, but maybe we can come back to that. Well, feel, point. feel free to get at it now while it's on our minds. Sure. Okay. Well, it's hot. Yeah. I mean, I, and I realize this is contentious in the United States and hopefully you're getting, you know, we'll get comments uh, from this and we can have a discussion if there are viewers out there with different views, but, you know, I would say um, that what you do see in, in Korea this is what Americans would call, um, you know, a universal single single payer, basically nationalized healthcare system, and um, you know, you see the incredible advantages of that, frankly, uh, because the system can coordinate a response to a public health crisis. The system knows how to work together already. Um, resources can be marshaled and mobilized from one place to the other. The public health sector, to begin with, uh, is well funded. Uh, because it has to be, because it's not competing with all the private sector uh, insurance companies and private hospitals. That whole 
um, uh, you know, ecosystem in the United States doesn't exist here. Uh, so, it, and, you know, I've been looking into this a little bit more. I've experienced it as a, as a patient and as a father who has sick kids. Um, but if you, if you just look at the numbers, Koreans pay less for their healthcare system. They get better outcomes. Uh, and you really see in a crisis the way the system can mobilize. And I think what we're seeing in the United States uh, is stuff that's very hard to fix because it's deeply ingrained in a, in a private for-profit healthcare system that has a very difficult time responding to a public health emergency. Yeah, no, these are good points. Uh, um, and thank you for that. The, um, let, let's come back now uh, to, I guess, that tech question. I'm not sure it is entirely a tech question, but um, uh, what happened to the, uh, uh, to, the, to the information that was gleaned from all those tests from a, from a technical standpoint and, and a well, spread, spread the information standpoint? I'll say a couple things, and then I'll, I'll punt to Jungmin, especially you asked about the early stages. And, and I should be clear, I, I, we came back uh, with the family. We were abroad uh, and came back just as the numbers started to spike here. But um, what I can say experientially is again in, in stark contrast to, to what I understand the way that information is flowing in the United States at a local level. I mean, literally just before we started this, uh, I'm sure Jungman got one too. We got automated, you know, our phones buzz basically whether we want them to or not. Throughout the day, we're getting emergency uh, messages with information, targeted information about confirmed cases in our neighborhoods in Seoul. So she's getting, she's in a different part of the city. She's getting a different message than I'm getting. Uh, we'll get some general messages to everyone, uh, reinforcing the importance of social distancing, for example. Um, but then we'll get what I think is so critical and distinctive in the Korean approach is I will get information about within my part of the city, whether there are any cases. And that works in really interesting ways. I think it's very important. And I do think this is something Americans maybe in, at the county, city, and state level need to think about going forward, the effect of that kind of micro-information, especially as this process wears on, as you realize it doesn't just suddenly go away. Uh, so far, we're finding we have to live with this for longer than we would certainly hope. When you get that information, first of all, you do feel a little safer in your immediate neighborhood right. when your phone is buzzing, but it's not telling you, you know, that there are cases down the block. And so I've noticed differences. For example, our family's in-laws early on were one of the areas in Seoul uh, with the highest concentration of cases. It was actually still a very small number, but proportionally it was the most. And so people didn't go out at all there, basically. Whereas in our neighborhood, we only had cases very recently and frankly, you know, even during the peak of social distancing, people were still out and about. Um, so, you know, when you get to that problem, because you do have to figure out how to keep life going on, you have to keep the economy, the society, the politics functioning, getting that information at your neighborhood level uh, makes a huge difference. And so that's one uh, very fundamental part of the, of the Korean strategy is the test gives you, you know, this data and then it is immediately flowing out to the public so that you know, um, you know quite detailed information about what's going on in your neighborhood. And I, and, I, and I guess I gather that part of that information is gleaned and reminds us a little bit of what you see in, in China or maybe in Singapore uh, as well. Uh, there's a lot of, of collection of data. So let's say, uh, God forbid one of you, let's say John, you, you, uh, you got the virus uh, that they then would burrow in or some of these apps would make use of a lot of data about you to, I guess, not out you in any way, but just sort of track you around. And um, I, I, I don't know uh, exactly how they all work, but these sort of, you know, apps that are Corona maps, if you, were, if you will. Now, much has been said here uh, as, as we hear about such things that, oh, you know, would never wash in Europe or the United States uh, because we're not ready. I mean, look at our attitudes towards Facebook and some of the other um, uh, big data companies, or for that matter, uh, generally speaking, American attitudes towards letting the, the government have a, have a ton of our, uh, of our data and privacy rules. Uh, Jungmin, you made the point to me uh, earlier that, you know, 
cultural norms uh, played a role here because the public was was just all in and, and okay with the kinds of things John was just talking about. Is that is that is that a fair point? Yes. So I think I should explain it in a two different sense. One is civil society level, another one is the government level. So this Corona map thing, it was created by a bunch of students and engineers who were who just wanted to provide information for people who wanted to um, know with an easy one look uh, where the confirmed cases were moving around and where their residents are. Um, and then it started very simply and then a lot of engineers joined their forces together to create it um, you know, more, more informative. And then on the government level, these emergency alerts that um, John mentioned, um, these not only track where you live, but also, I have no idea how they know that, but for, for example, um, because I'm enrolled in Seoul National University and also I'm working at Chongno area, I'm getting all these emergency alerts um, from Chongno in my residential area and the school area. So they have this information on where people are. Um, and another thing is that um, in America, I think that was, this would be considered a very serious privacy issue. But when you click on the emergency alert, they have a link and these local gov government of offices, they track down the information um, of the confirmed cases, like where they use their credit cards and looking at the security cameras. Um, they list where they have been going. So what I would say is that although culturally people seem to be okay with the government um, tracking the information of the suspected or confirmed cases, um, but although they are kind of giving up on their, um, you know, right to privacy, um, they are gaining the freedom of movement and the freedom <clears throat> of economic activities because um, for one thing, there was not much hoarding in South Korea. It's very different from other countries where they were, you know, people were lining up at the grocery stores to buy all these toilet papers. Um, at first, people were trying to hoard masks, but that was about it. And people, because pe people didn't really have this uncertainty about where these confirmed cases are and where they are moving around, um, I think people were less fearful of what is going to happen in the coming weeks. Right. So I think, um, you know, this was mentioned by William Gallo of VOA. Um, there is this um, swapping of certain freedoms, um, like, you know, choosing certain freedoms over something else in the time of crisis. Um, these different institutions of different types of democracy, I think um, citizens are responding very differently to the government responses. Right. Yeah, if I, um, if I can jump in on that, Tom, sure. um, uh, you know, I, again, watching, especially uh, in, in Northern California, where I'm kind of most concerned about um, my own relations. I mean, I'm, I have to say, I guess I've been Koreanized culturally, because I am shocked at how little information there is and how hard it is. Uh, if you live in like my hometown of Sacramento, California, it's impossible to find out information basic information. Um, I mean, you, you mean about you mean about who has cases? Yeah, I mean, and there's plenty of ways to obfuscate the identity. And in fact, about two weeks ago, the KCDC, the Korean CDC, which incidentally, to my understanding was created um, uh, after SARS as part of the response to SARS, and has really been doing I think everyone in Korea would agree has just done an extraordinary job they issued new guidelines to say, okay, we need to be more careful to protect identity, but to still give as much information as we possibly can. But I contrast that with a place like Sacramento, where the county health uh, department only releases the new numbers of cases and deaths Monday, Wednesday, Friday of the week. And, and when anyone asks, when the media says, can you tell us anything about where these are happening? And there are cluster, you know, there are infection clusters in the Sacramento area. They, they say we can't, you know, because of privacy, because of privacy. So um, I fully understand uh, Americans' concerns about privacy and they're very legitimate, um, but a balance has to be struck. And I would say at least parts of the United States are way off to one end of the spectrum uh, at least in a case, you know, Koreans care about privacy. It's not like we like people going through, or Koreans like yeah. people going through <laughs> credit card receipts, but you recognize that this is not a normal situation. 
And yeah. temporarily, you know, uh, this is a feisty democracy. They just impeached their last president. But temporarily, people accept these things um, for, for a public good. It's, it's a very, I mean, and, and your perspective, especially, John, given that you, you straddle both uh, East and West in this case, uh, is, is interesting. But we, you're right. And you have to wonder whether uh, when this is behind us all, uh, assuming it will once and for all be behind us, uh, whether that will be one of the reckonings here in discussions, because uh, it's one thing to have a hypothetical discussion uh, or a principled discussion about the privacy questions. But as you say, now that we've seen uh, uh, and are going through these, uh, these very traumatic times, whether uh, a balance will be struck. We're going to take a short break here to direct your attention to the Asia Game Changer Awards West Virtual Gala. The awards will celebrate four remarkable honorees, including Eric Yuan, CEO and founder of Zoom Video Communications, the entrepreneurs Nanshi Liu and Rupam Sharma, and the contemporary artist Yang Yongliang. The gala will be held on Tuesday, April 7th from 5 to 7 p.m. San Francisco time. To learn more and register, go to asiasociety.org northern-california. That's asiasociety.org northern-california. And now let's get back to Jongmin Kim, John Delury, and Tom Nagorski. I do want to, we're all, uh, I'm probably the most guilty referring to the South Korean situation in the past tense here. And we have a question from a viewer on YouTube that uh, maybe uh, would be a bit of a corrective. Marion Fila asks, I've heard many people no longer practice social distancing and that there is an expectation of life coming slowly back to normal in Korea in April. Do you think testing will be enough to prevent a second wave? Either one of you want to, uh, uh, I mean, is this in the rearview mirror in South Korea just yet? I would say, uh, can I, may sure. I? Yes, I would say it's a third wave because there was the first imported case and then the second Daegu one. And the third one right now that people are most concerned about and, and the government is more, most concerned about is the um, additional imported cases from the United States and also Europe, where all these mostly um, the students who were um, studying in um, places abroad, they are coming back to Korea. And I think the question from the viewer comes from the recent incident where this um, student who was studying in America came back to Korea and didn't really, um, wasn't really um, fully abiding by the social distancing rule and walking around Jeju and all that. And it seems that she was infected and she infected a lot of other people. But it, when it comes to social distancing, at the first, um, with the first question, Tom, you asked us like how much this is our life now. I think people, um, although people are wearing masks and going out to see the cherry blossoms and everything, people are still very aware that they have to stay away at least like two meters from each other and that they have to wear masks and they have to carry sanitizers. Um, and the government is constantly saying at least um, until April, um, April 6th, April 5th, um, people have to, um, the companies have to um, abide by the government recommendation that if ever it's possible, people should be um, working remotely or taking leave of absence from time to time in order to um, continue the social distancing. So I wouldn't say that social distancing is gone. It's still there. Mm -hmm. yeah, let, me, let me jump in on that. Uh, hello to Marion. And that's a very good question. And to build on um, what Jungmin said, I, I'm, you know, this issue, we are not epidemiologists here. Uh, but one thing that is striking about the Korean data, which is very easy to find on the KCDC uh, website, uh, and experts have noticed this, is a very high percentage. It's, it's been hovering 25 to 30% of the cases have been people in their 20s. And there was, um, because this Shincheonji sect um, is, is uh, disproportionately, um, we think women in their 20s, so that may have skewed the data a little bit, but it seems to be still holding at a very high level, even as it's gone beyond that sect. Um, we, I think we all know Anna Fifield. I just saw some data she posted from New Zealand. Uh, There's a much smaller sample, but also shows a lot of cases uh, in the 20s. And so this goes to Jungman's point. I mean, as a university professor, um, you know, I'm, I'm ready to teach online as long as we need to. 
uh, as the father of three kids under 12, I'm eager for elementary schools to, to resume as soon as it's safe. Yeah, um, why, are they, why are they not walking behind you there, John? Have you, have yeah, you ordered right. them away somewhere? Well, they'll pop up eventually. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, in seriousness, these are big, tricky problems, right? About, especially as this goes on. And I know my friends in the United States, um, everyone is struggling with this question of, of schools. Um, but I do think since there's some indication that um, you have a lot of carriers in the 20s, and Jungman's talked about this with some examples, as she points out, this is the big problem right now is uh, returned students who are coming from essentially hotspots. Um, I'm especially worried about the United States. Yeah. Um, I, I think at this point, um, I may be overly optimistic. Uh, the, the, the prime minister, who's kind of the Pence uh, role as as kind of heading this um, charge. He actually came out today and he he reminded people, you know, don't get complacent about this. Um, because actually, I would say in our neighborhood, I could feel it was a lot lax looser today. It was really nice weather. And the numbers, as you said, Tom, have been kind of going down and down. And it's human nature. You just start, you know, coming out of the woodwork. Yep. So, um, you know, back to the question, where, no, it's not it's not over. It still casts a shadow on everything. We still need to be very careful. Uh, again, for example, with resuming classes, but also just young people are together and, and there's risk of more clusters. Um, so there's still a great deal of vigilance. Um, at the same time, it's very hard to manage this, you know, and I think this is one thing we are a little bit, Jungman and I speaking from the future to some communities in the United States. Um, you know, there's a, there's like New York right now is in a very different place. You guys are dealing with, uh, the really frightening part, uh, of, of, um, the brunt of it. Um, but, uh, New York later and other communities in the United States, you know, you have to manage sort of the sustainability of living with this, um, for weeks and maybe months. And that raises a whole set of of issues that, you know, that we're grappling with still definitely in Korea, not over. So uh, I'm mindful of the time. We want to get to uh, uh, the COVID situation in North Korea. But before I do, there is an interesting question uh, from uh, online here uh, about U.S. troops in South Korea. And uh, one forgets, well, you guys don't forget. And at the Asia Society, we don't forget. But there are roughly 30,000 American uh, forces stationed in South Korea. And in a way, because it came to South Korea early, this, this was really the first large scale population of Americans. And they are, you know, set off uh, in, uh, in Seoul from, from the rest of the community. But uh, do either of you have any uh, intel on uh, how they have coped um, uh, as, uh, in, in facing COVID? Well, um, I'll jump in. I mean, uh, it, it was really interesting to watch through actually their social media. Um, they led the charge, you know, and they have actually there's not much U.S. military presence now uh, in Seoul, but there's a huge base where they've kind of consolidated um, in the city of Pyeongtaek in sort of central Korea. Um, but there's an active base in Tegu um, in the hard hit area, and they did have cases there. Um, and I think now they're getting some cases at the main base as well, Camp Humphreys. So, um, but what I would say overall is USFK, US Forces Korea, you know, the first large community of Americans who were, <clears throat> who were facing the brunt um, of COVID-19. And um, they did, I, I think, a, a very impressive job. And, and their commander, General Abrams, you know, was constantly messaging vigilance, close coordination with with South Korea, with the KCDC working very well together. And, you know, in a way I felt their message was one that Americans needed to hear a while ago before, frankly, America was taking this very seriously. Here was a group of Americans who you can kind of relate to saying, don't mess around with this thing uh, and practicing, you know, in a way that especially military units can practice um, strict social distancing and those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, it's been, um, uh, it's been interesting to watch, but I think they're still struggling with it. I mean, in just following the uh, reports, there's still cases popping up of USFK soldiers or, um, you know, there's a large, uh, probably twice that number 
uh, the twice the 30,000 number of dependents and employees that are kind of the larger USFK community. So let's, um, well, actually, I'm going to put in your minds, because it may take a little while to think about this, to park a question that's just come in over Facebook Live. Who are the real heroes, would you say, thus far, uh, or who have been? You've mentioned the KCDC a couple of times, but if you had to identify uh, individuals or institutions who really uh, deserve uh, a great deal of praise uh, for South Korea's success. But let's come back to that and go to the North, which we've been promising. Uh, I know both of you are qualified to talk about this, uh, but Jung-min, uh, really, this is your, I don't want to say life's work. Uh, you're one of that small <laughs> community who try to divine uh, what's going on uh, up there. Um, and it's never easy, no matter what we're talking about. But you talk about different responses globally, mm. government to government, uh, to the coronavirus. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, North Korea will probably not behave uh, like most, if, if not any other nation. Uh, all we really know, I guess, is that uh, they have not reported a single mm -hmm. case of COVID-19. Uh, and there have been, uh, interestingly, uh, requests, I don't know if it's come from Kim Jong-un himself or from his, his, his government, uh, requests this week for aid and assistance. Uh, why don't you read some tea leaves for us, uh, Jung, and what can you tell us uh, about what you think is going on uh, in North Korea as far as the virus goes? Mm. Well, technically, I would say that, well, at least North Korea said that Trump uh, suggested that they, he would have cooperation with Kim Jong-un regarding the uh, quarantine measures. Um, overall, right now, North Korea's main line of strategy is a border shutdown. People, a lot of media outlets use this term hermit kingdom, and they are more of a hermit kingdom, like more than ever, I would say that. And there were other diseases before, but then this time the quarantine measures are very unprecedentedly strict. Um, they continue to claim that there's no cases of COVID-19. And recently the Minister of Foreign Affairs, they call, it called North Korea a clean land and, you know, boasted of it. Um, about what's going on on the ground, I would have to say that we, this is not um, based on what we are hearing from the people on the ground, but these are what's available in the open source, um, according to their newspapers and the state media. Um, they say that over 380 foreigners um, were quarantined, but right now they, it seems that they have become a little bit more confident about their measures, so only one foreigner um, is under isolation. And there were these bits and bobs of um, how many people were quarantined in um, the provinces in North Korea. And my math was that it's near, somewhere near um, 10,000 were under isolation and what they call medical observation. But as of this morning, they said that only 2,000 uh, plus people were isolated uh, nationwide. Um, the main line of propaganda North Korea is pushing right now is that they are implementing national emergency quarantine system that started on January 30th. And they put up this emergency quarantine command as well. And after uh, Kim Jong-un held this really powerful Politburo meeting, um, they started using this term super special quarantine measures. And the daily like sections like people ask me if North Koreans are being informed about what's going on in the world. And I would say yes. Although it's the North Korean version, the daily section of KCTV, which is state television, and Odong Shimun, they have been for weeks um, dedicating a certain section um, for informing the WHO guidelines and how many people were infected in, um, in South Korea and China and whatnot. Um, and they continue to claim that prevention measure is like a national survival. And also domestic quarantine measures are very, very strong. It seems that they are taking it very seriously with the foreign embassy staff and diplomats. They were under a very strict uh, one month plus quarantine. And one of the Russian diplomats said that it was basically like a house arrest. Um, but right now, some of them flew out um, on March 9 and they can visit a few of the stores, but they are still under very strict quarantine measures. And the citizens are educated to always wear masks and wash hands and disinfect their offices and that they are strictly forbidding um, public gatherings, which is like a North Korean version of social distancing. And they also postponed their spring semester and 
the public amenities, some of them very famous, the new Yangdok Springs Hot Springs Resort and the Mashingyong um, Ski Resort, they are all temporarily closed as of February 25th. And they also claim to mass produce these hazmat suits and disinfectants, sanitizers, and masks. And they suspended tourism and the, and the flights and trains to China and Russia, they're all suspended. And they are also having this really strict 10 day rule for all, all the imported cargoes and that they can't really touch them until 10 days has passed. So, 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 so here's, that, yeah. yeah, so here's a fundamental question. I mean, I guess it, it, in, in a way it stands to reason that they'd be very forthcoming about the global news because as you say, the global news right now from their standpoint, looks like all these nightmares all over the world. And they're saying they have no cases and they're a success story and, and all the things you just mentioned. Maybe a tough question to answer, but do you think that if, um, uh, first of all, do we think they are, do we have any way to know whether they are really testing? Do they have the capacity to do that? And second, if they did have, uh, whether they were some of the few foreigners there or North Korean uh, citizens, if they did have an outbreak of a few hundred or, or what have you cases, do you think they would share that with the world? Yeah, maybe I'll jump in here. Um, to my knowledge, they do. I think we can deduce they have uh, some capacity to, to test. I've tried hard to, and talked to a lot of people to figure out what it would be. Um, but there's, uh, you can actually look through the UN because uh, humanitarian groups and even the WHO has to get uh, waivers from a UN committee sanctions waivers, even for COVID-19 medical supplies. And, uh, and so they list publicly um, detailed information and in that uh, about what they're applying for the waivers for. Uh, and that includes um, test kit related uh, materials. Uh, the Russian government also said they sent uh, 1500 test kits. I think the big X factor is uh, how much China helped from an early stage. Um, actually, one interesting thing that didn't get a lot of attention is uh, er relatively early on in this, I can't think of the date off the top of my head, um, but, you know, I was checking the daily, uh, uh, like Jongmin reads the North Korean daily, I was reading the, the Chinese People's Daily, and there on the, on the front page of the People's Daily was sort of a thank you note from Xi Jinping to Kim Jong-un for his uh, support uh, and the North Koreans put this message out as well, including aid, that North Korea yeah. was giving aid. Uh, and some people kind of laugh this off, but, you know, the Chinese took it seriously and reported oh. it in the newspaper yeah. that North Korea was giving them aid. I think that is, um, uh, now this is inference here, but I think that that, uh, that was part of also North Korea receiving um, help from China um, uh, of course, neither of them want this to get out of control. That's not good for either side. So, uh, but, you know, a lot be in the China-North Korea relationship does not get reported. Um, so I think I have a slightly, I don't know if I disagree with Jungman. That was an incredibly thorough account. Um, I, I, you know, I've thought a lot about the North Korean situation. And I would just add to your question, Tom, one thing we saw about Kim Jong-un very early on uh, that sort of surprised observers is the way he acknowledged failures. You know, the classic example was the first big satellite test right. that, that puttered out and everyone was ready for him to say, oh no, it was a great success. And he had the announcer say, okay, it failed. We'll try again. And they tried again in December and it succeeded. Um, and he's done that many times. It's kind of a trademark that actually he's more forthcoming, also mm -hmm. more quickly forthcoming about failures, about things going wrong. Actually, it happened with Hanoi. You know, he didn't pretend uh, that Hanoi was this great success. He, he came out and explained yeah. to the people why it was a failure. So uh, also I was in, in Vietnam, I'll try to make this quick, but in the early stages of this, and I don't want to overdo Vietnam and North Korea are extremely different, but in some ways I think there's similarities in that, um, you know, countries with socialist traditions, with an emphasis on public health, and sometimes, I mean, Vietnam is much wealthier than North Korea, but poorer countries can focus more on public health. Um, you know, they, they don't do our high-end uh, catering to individual care. Their public health resources are focused very much on the entire public. And they're good at, you know, the kind of, I mean, in a way, social distancing comes, can come quite naturally to North Korea, 
neighborhoods are well organized. You get the message out to everyone. You know, you have all these top-down levers, even even more than what's possible in China, which is a, which is a much more kind of dynamic and loose society. So, you know, actually, my guess would be North Korea has been able to keep this under control. I'm not saying it's really zero cases, but I think they are able to manage it. They took it extremely seriously earlier than basically anyone. They shut down their border, and there's not a lot of contact to begin with. Uh, exactly. They constantly talk about it in their media. Um, so they, I, I think they're still vigilant about it, but I think they've managed um, at great sacrifice um, maybe to, to prevent any serious spread of, of COVID to this stage. We do have one question I want to get to from uh, uh, someone you probably both know, Seon Kim at uh, Voice of America, uh, watching over YouTube uh, today. Uh, and it's an interesting question, given that we're sitting here now in the United States with more cases than, than even China had and growing. Uh, and, and North Korea reportedly at zero. But she asks, uh, should the United States and global society help and provide equipment, disinfecting tools, supportive measures, even though North Korea uh, has said their positive number is zero, as, and then adds, which seems too unclear and suspicious. Um, you've mentioned that North Koreans are, are offering help to others, but uh, should the United States help if asked? Uh, and, and, and in what fashion? It seems, as I say, an, an odd thing to be considering right now. But either one of you want to take that? Uh, it's a good question. Go ahead, John. You start, John. No, no. It's okay. Oh, well, I mean, anyone who knows my views on North Korea knows what I'm going to say, uh, which is, of course, <laughs> uh, we should, whether it's the United States, uh, South Korea should offer it. Uh, the WHO has and should offer it really to any country at this stage when you're in a pandemic. Now is not the time, um, you know, to to try to figure out how sanctions enforcement are going to get you denuclearization, which they weren't doing anyway. Right. Uh, not not to surprise your viewers with that fact. So, uh, you know, it, it, North Korea, um, insofar as uh, they want and are willing to receive international cooperation, um, just like other countries, because, you know, some countries are better at certain things than others. Um, the international community should support them with that. That seems just kind of basic common sense. Um, you know, I've argued that I don't think they have a major outbreak. That doesn't mean they couldn't. And if they did, um, that's going to be, you know, a, a potentially a nightmare, a new nightmare, a new wave uh, for us in South Korea, in, in China, across the border. So it's not that hard to make a common uh, good argument that when you're in a pandemic, you look for ways to support really all countries in their efforts to, to manage, to prevent, to contain. Yeah. That would be my That opinion. is certainly, uh, you're, I mean, you're not the only one and we're not the only ones, but that is sort of from the Asia Society playbook at the moment. Uh, our CEO, Josette Sheeran, actually just uh, uh, wrote an editorial the other day on exactly that point, that uh, this is not a time for... Uh, you know, this is a time for global collaboration and cooperation and coalitions wherever we can find them. Let's come back then to, fit, to wrap things. Uh, it's been a great discussion. We've covered, you know, the power of testing and preparedness and, and tracing and IT and the healthcare system uh, and global collaboration. But um, come back to that interesting question a Facebook viewer had about if you had to single out uh, uh, an individual or an institution that you think really deserves great credit for foresight or for thinking for any of the, the things we've discussed in South Korea, uh, who would you, uh, who, who would you single out? Let's start with you, Jungmin. It's a tough question because I feel like this was a, this was a joint effort and this didn't, you know, succeed because like a certain institution or individual um, made a heroic move. I know that many people are referring to KCDC as a hero and it has a point and I do agree, but I feel like the, the citizens response, it was one of the most important factors in flattening the curve. Um, all in all, like aside from a few exceptions, I felt, I, I thought that the South Korean citizens responded um, very, in a very civil way, um, uniting and coordinating and following the rules um, and also um, joining efforts, their talents in their IT industry or whatever they can do um, to share information 
and they also started a lot of like hashtag movements or whatnot because it's a very highly connected society. Um, people try to raise awareness on their own. So if I have to choose a hero, I would say, you know, any South Korean citizen who tried to contribute to raising awareness. That's a tough answer to follow, John. I don't want to go after that. That's that's kind of a perfect answer. Don't make me speak. (laughs) I mean, really, you can't improve on that. That's a great answer. And and I would agree. Um, I I guess, um, you know, we could say it's kind of interesting um, and I generally like the president, President Moon Jae-in, but, but I would not immediately go to him. And uh, that kind of is interesting. Not that he's um, made mistakes, uh, but there's been a lot of criticism um, throughout the process. And sometimes that surprises my American friends who just assume, you know, he must be at 90% approval ratings because uh, most of the coverage, especially now, is quite positive of South Korea. Um, and I've seen his numbers are ticking upwards. Um, and I think generally, um, especially more recently, people kind of recognize that the government's done a good job and he's done a good job. But, you know, in a way, this kind of go- goes back to Jungman's point. I think one thing that's great about Korea is even when, comparatively speaking, the government is probably doing a really good job, people are pissed off about stuff, you know, so people were mad and it's in the press. Uh, that why didn't we close the border earlier? To China, uh, where are the masks? You know, I mean, there's been there's been weeks of we need five billion more masks here, even though again compared with the United States, I think there's there's been a better flow of masks. But um, you know, even even a, a President Moon, who's probably done overall a competent job, is constantly under um, a healthy amount of criticism from experts, from doctors, from the media, from the opposition. And so it kind of, it's the other side of these privacy issues. It shows the health of the democracy uh, and that Korea has an active citizenry who will make, you know, sacrifices, um, but are, are vigilant, you know, have a common spirit. You do feel that. And that's, that's quite impressive. So I agree with Jungman. Great answer. That'll do it for this week's episode. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and check out past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. Meanwhile, we wish you all the best. Stay healthy. Stay safe. We're in this together. I'm Matt Skiavenza. See you next time.